Well, today I get to do something that I haven't ever got to do in 13 years of pastoring. I've been here for 13 years. For those of you who don't know, it's my first church. I'm hoping that it's my last church. Yeah, Somebody, somebody's excited. And um, so in the early days, um, you know, we did it kind of old school church. We, we had Sunday morning sermons, Sunday night sermons, and Wednesday night sermons. They were all different. So in the early days, it's like three different sermons a week. So I, I've done a lot of sermons, a lot of messages, but I get to do something I've never gotten to do in a message today. And uh, I'm not going to keep that uh, privilege uh, for myself only. You get to do something today that you've never had the opportunity to do while being here at the Creek listening to one of my sermons. And I guess you could say that all of us uh, today have the opportunity to make history. And, and a lot of people don't get the opportunity to make history, but when you get the opportunity to make history, it's really important that you get it right. If you know you're about to make history, you wanna make history right. You wanna get it right. So today is a really big deal because we all get to make history because we get to put our hands together and make a lot of noise here in London and in Somerset to welcome for the very first time the Creek Church Williamsburg on their kickoff Sunday. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I just, uh, I just got photos from down there, full house. I, I think maybe you're not gonna get everybody in, I'm not real sure, but we are so, so thrilled that you're there on the first Sunday of the Creek Church Williamsburg. A little under a year ago, we made the announcement for Williamsburg and today they're kicking off and it's gonna be an incredible, incredible week, not only there, but here in London and Somerset and all of our churches and for those of you who are watching online. Uh, today we're kicking off a brand new series and you've picked a great weekend to be here. Uh, we're kicking off this series called We Are the creek. And by the time this series is over, I may get myself fired, but I promise you if I do, it's going to be a lot of fun until we get there. And I hope that you're going to be here every week of the series, especially if you're new to the creek or you find yourself still curious about the creek, you have questions uh, about our church. Uh, this series is all about introducing you to our church so that you can get to know all of us, maybe get to know me a little bit. And, and hopefully that you will understand more about what's important to us so that you can then understand how that shapes why we do what we do, how we do it. And so if you're new or you're curious, this series is just for you. And then if you've been around here for a while, this series is also for you because hopefully we will introduce you to the church that you call your church in a fresh new way as we talk about some things that you've probably never heard us talk about publicly before that we usually talk about internally in staff meetings and in different settings. Uh, so it's gonna be a lot of fun. Now, let me say something to those of you who may be here and you don't consider yourself a church person. Matter of fact, you can't even believe that you're in church today. You swear you'd never be back in a church, but hey, here you are. And, and, and you're not sure exactly how it happened. Uh, I think that you picked a great weekend to be here too, because I think in this series, we may just end up talking about some of the things that may have led you to your decision to walk away from the local church or may even walk away from faith. And I am hopeful that in this series, you may find a reason to reconsider the local church or a reason more specifically and more importantly to reconsider Jesus. That's what I'm hoping happens as a result of this. So no matter who you are and no matter what brought you here, we are really glad that you're here. Now, if you're new, maybe in the last three months, six months, a year, you've come to our church or maybe even two years, chances are that right before you came to our church or shortly after coming to our church, you may have heard some things about our church. 
And really, it's still a surprise to you that you attend this church based on some of the things you heard about our church before you actually showed up at our church. And But here you are, and, and you can relate to some of the things that you heard about our church because everybody hears things about people, and we hear things about not only this church, but other churches. That's just kind of the nature of life, and people talk. And, and so if you're new around here, you probably heard some things about our church before you came, and you've probably heard some things about our church after you came, and now you've got questions, and, and, and it's made you a little bit curious, or you've been around here for a while and and you've got friends and family you know once upon a time they said hey could could y'all come over for dinner and you're like wow yeah sure you haven't invited us over in a while that's great and you went over there and everybody's sitting around the table and and they just they ask you is everything okay <laughs> I think so what are y'all doing for church these days well we're attending the Creek Church <sighs> That's kind of what we wanted to talk to you about, right? Uh, some of you have had those conversations before because, you know, uh, there's just things that get said from time to time. So I hope that this series, if nothing else, will help us to confirm or deny some of the things that you have heard. That, that's what I hope, that in the midst of today, over the course of the next few weeks, we'll be able to confirm or deny some of the things that you've heard because I hear things too, right? I, I'm sure that you, you've been asked before. I've heard it's basically a Vegas show act. <laughs> Is that true? We can confirm that everybody out here on one of our stages could work in Vegas, but none of them have come from Vegas. That, that's what I can tell you. Perhaps you were asking along the way, I've heard they sing secular music at the Greek. And I think you should just say to a person who says that, yes, I can confirm that, but we only do it well. Right, I, I think, and so, you know, hopefully we can confirm and deny some things. You know, people say, hey, that church is just a big rock show. There's fog and lights. What kind of church has fog and lights? Who wants to do fog and lights? And I say, God, God was the first one to do fog and lights on Mount Sinai. There was thundering, lightning, and smoke. And, and, and we leave behind the fire because it's a hazard and we would get cited for that and we don't want to pay the penalty and, and we don't want anybody to get hurt in the midst of church because we just don't feel like that's good church when people get hurt in the midst of church. Uh, you know, and, and we've heard, you know, I've heard all kinds of things. Maybe they ask you, is it true that you had to give your W-2s out there at the creek to join? No, we also ask for your 1099 as well. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. We, we, we don't. You know, it's not even a real church, I've heard. It doesn't even have a steeple, to which I want to say, yeah, but in the church world, there's a law that says the bigger the steeple, the fewer the people. And, 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 and I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. Lighten up, lighten up. It's just not, but anyway. And then I hear from time to time, you know, you don't believe the Bible out there. And I just want to say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We do believe the Bible. And then from time to time, people say, well, anyone can go out there to that church. And proudly, I love to say, yes, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter what, everyone, anyone is welcome here. We love to say it this way, this way, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are welcome here. And I think that's a big deal because I think that's the way that Jesus intended the church to be known. I think that Jesus designed and created the church to be this way. Matter of fact, when Jesus predicted the church, he knew that within the church, there were going to be all kinds of different personalities. He, he knew that we were going to have different histories. We were going to have different perspectives. You know, a lot of us have nothing in common. And Jesus 
knew that. But he knew that the only thing that we may share in common was the most important thing that we have in common, which is Jesus. And the belief is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, he understood that the church would be full of people who had nothing in common except for maybe that one thing. Jesus knew that the church was going to have a lot of diversity in it. That's the way Jesus wanted the church to be from the very beginning. If a church drifts towards or desires uniformity rather than diversity, it is not the church that Jesus intended for it to be. So when Jesus launched the church, Jesus knew that the greater the diversity, the greater the difficulty would be in preserving unity among all of that diversity. We know that we are getting the local church right when we have very little in common with the people that we actually go to church with. That's how Jesus intended the church to be. When he called 12 disciples, they had very little in common. The only thing they had in common was a belief that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. When the church launched, the greater the diversity, the greater the difficulty in preserving unity. But Jesus's vision of the local church was simply this, a group of people who have nothing else in common except for Jesus and the belief that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that we may disagree on everything else. We may debate everything else and perhaps we should, but the one thing that we will share in common if we are the church as Jesus intended, the one thing that we will share in common is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus knew that diversity would be a challenge to unity. He knew that diversity would increase the difficulty in establishing and preserving unity. So Jesus took his disciples to the upper room. These disciples had nothing in common except Jesus. He took them to the upper room and he's gonna tell them and he's gonna show them how to establish and protect unity. He's gonna take off his robe, he's gonna gird himself with a towel and he's gonna wash their feet. And as he's up there in the upper room, he is gonna introduce a value to them. He is gonna introduce a priority to them. And around here at the creek, we call it, we is greater than me. That's how we articulate it around here at the creek. He introduced a new value to these guys who had nothing in common except for Jesus. He introduced to them this idea that we is greater than me. That the sum total is more important than the parts. That it's just not about individual rights. It is about a corporate responsibility. We is greater than me. That me never trumps the we. We always trumps me. And so Jesus, he washed their feet to demonstrate what this looks like. And he told them they ought to serve one another because we is more important than me. And then he gives them a new command and he says, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I, as I, Jesus would say, have loved you. So you must love one another. And then this is a big deal. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And this is fascinating because anytime we can discover how Jesus thought about himself, it's a really big deal. And evidently, when Jesus thought of himself, and specifically how Jesus thought of himself in terms of how people thought about him, Jesus understood that the thing that people thought of first when they thought about him was love. That whenever someone heard Jesus, whenever someone heard his name, when anyone saw him coming, the first thing that they thought of was love. Because Jesus said, if you love one another, they will associate you with me. 
When you love one another, they are going to assume that you are one of my disciples because the thing that people thought of first when they thought about Jesus was love. And so Jesus said, the first thing that I want them to think of when they think about you is love. Because Jesus was known as someone who loved people, who loved all people, who loved everyone without exception, without exemption. And he says, when people think about you, that's how they ought to think about you. And specifically, Jesus desired that when people thought about the church, the local church and the church, capital big C, that when people thought about the church, the first thing that they thought of when they think about church is, oh my goodness, how they love one another. They love one another despite their diversity. They love one another despite how different they are. Their different histories, their different perspectives, their different opinions, their different skin colors, their different ethnicities, their different theologies, their different beliefs, their different experiences. Jesus desired that when people thought about us, the church, that they would think first about love. And so he told them that night, when you love one another, you will serve one another so that you can be one with one another. And you will never be one with one another until you learn to love one another. You will never have unity in the midst of diversity unless you love, learn to love one another. So they leave the upper room and then Jesus, he takes them to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus prays. Now think about this. Can you imagine what it was like to hear Jesus pray? John, one of his disciples, was close enough to hear Jesus pray and wrote down what Jesus prayed. And that night in the garden, after Jesus had taught them this big idea that if you love one another, you will serve one another and you will be one with one another. Jesus left there and when Jesus prayed, he prayed for his disciples because he knew that it was gonna be difficult for them to get along sometimes because they're so different. But not only did he pray for those disciples that night, but he also prayed for us. And this is powerful. This is what Jesus prayed the night that he's gonna be arrested, the day before he's gonna be crucified. He says, Father, my prayer is not for them alone, but I also pray for those. Do you know who those are? That's us, that's we, that's you, that's me. For those who will believe in me through their message, that's future believers. He says that all of them, and talk to me, what's this word in red? One. That they may be what? One. That they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that purposeful statement that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus said, when you love one another and you're one with one another, the world finds you more believable. Jesus connects our unity with our credibility. And this, this is important. This is such a big deal. He says, when you are one with one another, other people will start to begin to be one of you. He says, when you are one with one another, other people's gonna wanna be one of you because your unity gives you influence and it gives you credibility. And here's what Jesus would say to all the churches of the world. And specifically because we're here today, we're talking about our church. Jesus said, if you get this right, people will believe. If you fail to get this right, 
you will give people a reason not to believe. When you love one another and are one with one another, it makes your message more believable. People want to lean in instead of walk away. And I'm telling you, after 13 years, and I hope that I get to retire here, I hope I'm here for decades, and I hope that we all get to make this journey together. But after 13 years, here is what I desire for our church. I desire that our church, because we are committed to love one another and serving one another so that we can be one with one another, I desire and pray and hope and aspire that our church will always give the world a reason to lean in and never give them a reason to walk away. That's what I hope for our church. That's what I hope for me. That's what I hope for you. And I hope that we understand that Jesus was the one who introduced this idea that we is greater than me. And if we get it right, people are going to believe what we say. Now think about this. This is what Jesus prayed for. This was Jesus's prayer request. Think about this. Unity is the only prayer Jesus prayed that we alone have the power to answer. You're always thinking about God answering your prayers. But we have the capacity. We alone have the power to answer this prayer for Jesus. Jesus prayed that we would be one and you and I are the only ones who can answer that prayer. Jesus is arrested by the temple. He's crucified by the empire. He's gonna be buried after his death. And on the third day, he's gonna be resurrected from the dead. 120 of his followers who are eyewitnesses of his resurrection are going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to go to the upper room. And there on the day of Pentecost, perhaps you've heard this story from times being in church in the past. On the day of Pentecost, the church is born. And thousands of people flood into the church. Thousands of people. Such diversity. Thousands of people who have nothing else in common except for a belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died for sins, he was buried, he was raised from the dead. Other than that, they have very, very little in common. And thousands of people flock into the church. And this is how the church was known in the very beginning. It says all the believers were one in heart and mind. It was the type of unity that transcended differences that normally divided people. This type of unity was uncommon. This type of unity was unheard of. This type of unity was unnatural and it did not go unnoticed. Now listen to me, the more that the church grows in numbers and the more that the church grew in locations and the more that the church grew in diversity, the greater the difficulty it was to preserve unity. That was the challenge then and that is the challenge now. Now, I just want you to think about it for a moment. Think about some of the people you're sitting beside. Think about some of the people who are sitting in front of you, some of the people you bumped into before you came into church today. Think about the people behind you. Think about, hey, I know that they attend there. I'm not sure if they're in the service that I attend, but I know that they're there. And you think about some of the people you go to church with. You've probably once upon a time thought to yourself, we're nothing like these people. I'm nothing like them. I'm not nothing like her. I'm nothing like him. Maybe your family showed up to our church and you looked around and you said, we have nothing in common with those people. And I need you to know that that is absolutely a good thing. And that is absolutely the way that Jesus intended the church to look. So the church has always struggled with keeping unity in the midst of diversity. 
20 years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul, who hated Jesus before he became a follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul was really concerned about, hey, you should love one another so that you should be one with one another so that the world will believe you. He, he would write about unity to churches in so many of his letters because it's one of the things that followers of Jesus have always struggled with and always will struggle with. This idea of loving one another and being one with one another. It's something we've always struggled with. We always will. And so Paul wrote about it time and time again. And in one of his letters, he would write it to a group of Christians living in the city of Colossae. And in this letter, I think that he's gonna capture the tension that exists within diversity. Whenever you're in a diverse crowd, whenever you're in the midst of a whole bunch of people that you share nothing in common with, that you don't believe like them, you don't see the world like them, you don't share their politics, you don't share their ideas, you don't share their history. Whenever you're in one of those environments, there's tension to that. It's not exactly light-aired, it's heavy. And sometimes it's just uncomfortable. And so he captures the tension uh, that, that, uh, that happens and that exists within diversity. And Paul is gonna write to these Christians and he's gonna tell them how they can get unity and also how that they can preserve unity. And so he's gonna talk about how Jesus changes our life, right? We've, we've all heard that. And that's kind of where we're gonna pick up in the letter with this idea that Jesus has changed our life. And this is what Paul said to them. He says, since, you, since you've come to faith in Jesus, since you've decided to be a follower of Jesus, since you've taken off your old self, with its practices, the old way that you used to think about people, the old way that you used to treat people, your old natural responses. He, he says, now that you come to Jesus, everything has changed. You've taken off your old self with its practices and you have put on the new self because, because of Jesus, something has changed. You are not who you used to be. And even though you're not entirely who God wants you to be yet, you're not who you used to be. There's an old you, and there's a new you, there's an old me and there's a new me. He says, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. He says, the new you is in the created image of Jesus. It's created in the image of Jesus. He says, the old you, he says, that's passing away. The new you is now becoming reality. Now, don't miss this. He says, what used to be true of you is growing less and less true of you. And what is true of Jesus is now becoming more and more true of you. What used to be true of you is becoming less and less true of you. And what is true of Jesus is now becoming more and more true of you because you are created in the image of Jesus. So what was true of Jesus is now becoming true for you. How Jesus was known is now how you are being known. And so he says, everything has changed because your relationship with Jesus changes all your other relationships. He says, because in this new creation, in this thing called the church, listen to what Paul says, and this, this is where he picks up on the tension of it all. He says, here, in this new creation, in this church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in on. And here's what Paul's saying. He says, culture, politics, society, it always does the same thing in every generation. It pits group against group. It divides us up. It divides us up in skin color. It divides us up into ethnicities. 
It divides us up into political parties. It divides us up into ideologies. It divides us up into tribes. It divides us up into theologies. It divides us up. That's what culture has always done. It divides people into groups and into tribes. But Paul said, inside the church, that is not the way things are. All those walls that culture and society and even religion has built to divide us from one another, Paul says, in Christ, inside the church, those walls have been torn down. Now your identities are not connected to a group or to a community or to a group of people or another group of people or to a political party or to a group of theologies that's out there that you share in common. He says, no, your identity is connected entirely and specifically and uniquely to Jesus. These divisions were emotional and generational in the first century. Gentile and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, had nothing to do with each other in the first century. Nothing. They didn't hang out together. They didn't eat together. They didn't go to church together. Jews, if you were Jewish, you thought Gentiles were nasty. You thought that they were filthy. You were God's chosen people and the Gentiles were not God's chosen people. God loved you, but God did not love them. God cared enough about you to give you the law, but God did not care enough about them to give them the law. You're special, they are not. If you were Jewish, you weren't even allowed to go into the house of a Gentile. You you couldn't do it. You would be made unclean if you went down to the market, you know, and you, you went up to your neighborhood butcher shop and you said, hey, I you know, think um, probably about a seven pound beef tenderloin. Hey, not a lot of marbling, but just a little bit of marbling to add a little bit of taste in there. And then you're like, where's Larry, my normal butcher? Where's Larry? Oh, Larry's on vacation. I don't know you. Where are you from? Are you a Gentile? You were not allowed to buy food or merchandise of any kind from a Gentile because you would contaminate your home when you took it back. If you were a Jew and you went outside the city, you know, went outside the nation of Israel, when you came back in from Gentile nations, you you would shake off your robe to get the Gentile cooties off of you (laughs) because they were so bad. If you were Gentile, you looked at the Jewish people and you're thinking, what kind of crazy man circumcises himself? And if you got close enough to a Jew down at the market, hey, sorry, Mr. Jewish guy. What was it like? <sighs> Thankful I'm, I'm not a Jew, right? And you thought that the Jewish people were religious zealots. These people could not get along. And then the barbarians, they didn't speak Greek. They were considered unlearned, uneducated. They were just considered dumb, stupid, not contributors of any kind to society. The Scythians, they were warlords. They loved violence. The first person they killed in battle, they would scalp them, use their scalp as napkins, drink the blood of the first victim in that war, and drink his blood from his skull. They were regarded as nasty that they never bathed. He's a slave or free. Some who were viewed only as property and traded and sold as though they were animals. And now all of those walls, some of them socioeconomic, some of them racial, some of them ethnic, some of them religious, some of them theological, all came down inside the church. And all of a sudden, they went from being enemies, 
they went from being those people, they went from being those people you would never be with, you would never talk to, that you would never associate with, they went from that to family. And that was the church. Because all of a sudden, Gentile and Jewish people, there they were that first Sunday, sitting beside each other. And you know what? Unity, this is Paul's point, unity is uncomfortable. Unity is uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for the Jewish people to be next to the Gentiles. It was uncomfortable for the Gentiles to be next to the Jewish people. It was uncomfortable for the barbarians and the Scythians and the free and the non-free to be there all together. It was uncomfortable. So if you've ever attended one of our churches and you've ever walked in and you've ever looked around and you've seen that person or you've seen them and you don't understand why that person is doing that or why they are doing that. And, and you just, and you look around and you see some of the things that you see and you hear some of the things that you hear and you get to know some people and you figure out their story and you figure out who they are. And you have probably felt uncomfortable and that's okay. Because I hope that you understand feeling uncomfortable in the local church is not a bad thing, it is a good thing. We were taught somewhere along the way that the local church was supposed to be somewhere we went so that we could feel completely comfortable. It has never been that. It was never intended to be that because unity is uncomfortable. Because when you see them and you have to sit beside her and you know what he did and oh my goodness, do they know what they do? Do they know where they go on Friday night? Do they know what kind of person that is? Do they know? And all of a sudden, if we don't sense some kind of uncomfortableness, we have ceased to be the church the way Jesus intended for it to be. So I hope, I hope for you and I hope for me that we never get to attend any of our churches and feel completely comfortable. I hope we will continue to look around. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know how I feel. I, this doesn't feel right. No, it feels uncomfortable. Uncomfortable doesn't mean wrong. It just means uncomfortable. And I'm okay if you're uncomfortable. And I'm okay if I'm uncomfortable because we will have to be uncomfortable in order to have unity in the midst of diversity. If racial walls are gonna fall down, if social walls are gonna fall down, if ideological walls are gonna fall down, political walls are gonna fall down, if all of the walls that separate us outside the church are gonna fall down in the church, we are gonna have to be willing to be made uncomfortable. That's the church that Jesus intended. And so he goes on, he says, because of this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion. What does that mean, Paul? Get close enough to people to hear their stories. It's easy to hate someone far away. It's easy to hate a group of people. It's easy to hate the other party. It's easy to hate those who are not like you. But he says, I want you to get close enough to hear their stories because it is hard to hate up close. It is hard to hate up close, so have compassion and get close enough to those who are not like you. Whenever you hear yourself say, I don't know how anybody could do that. I don't know how anybody could be that. Remind yourself gently 
then there must be something. I don't know. So I wanna get close enough to know. I don't know how they could think that. I don't know how they could think that's wrong. I don't know how they could think that's right. Get close enough to discover why. That's compassion, kindness. That's leaky grace. You treat people better than they deserve. You're soft around the edges, you're not abrasive. Humility, now this is a great one. Humility, we don't look down each other's noses. Nobody is better, there's no me better than the we. And there's no me better than the other we's. Do you know what the scripture is saying? That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. Do you know that's when God stops keeping score? Short of the glory. But do you know what we like to think? Yeah, we all fell short of the glory of God, but I feel like I fell a little shorter from the glory of God than a lot of people. And we keep score. It's like, hey, I got, I got inside the tent. They're out there on the 35. They're not even crossed the 50 yard line. I'm better. And we begin to look down. I don't struggle with your sin, so I pick on your sin. I don't understand your sin, so I pick on your sin. You don't understand me, so you pick on me. Humility is we don't look down, we look at each other. We serve one another, we love one another so that we can be one with one another. Patience means we're okay with process. Some of us, it's gonna take us a while to get to where God's trying to take us. Not everybody makes progress at the same speed. And inside the local church, if we're gonna get this right, we gotta be okay that it may take some people a long time. Some people may never get to the place that we want them to get. God can change a heart before God changes a habit. And it may take somebody a long time to get to where you think they ought to be. It requires patience gentleness if we're going to be one with one another. Unfortunately, this is not the church that most people have experienced. When I first started preaching, I went to a church that was, all I'm going to say is with, in a seven county radius of where we are. I'm not going to tell you where it's at, don't ask me. I went there to preach, I was brand new. I just started preaching, just started going out and talking to other churches. And I went there that morning and, and a friend of mine drove me there. And, and before I could get my, my, my both feet, before I could get both feet out of the car, like one of the leaders, one of the elders of the church, who was also like the song leader of the church, came out there and he, he's carrying this big Bible. I mean, you could have worked biceps with that Bible. I mean, it was huge. And he came out there with that Bible and he grabbed me by the hand before I ever got out of the car and he said, Brother Barton? Yes, sir. Brother Barton, are you coming today to preach the word of God? I do have a Bible with me. Yes, yes, that's my plan. I, I do have a sermon and we are gonna be in the Bible. Yes, yes. He says, brother, I tell you what, I want you to know about it. I said, we are a Baptist church and we're proud of it. We are just like John. The Baptist. <laughs> We're just like John, and we believe the Bible around here, and I'm telling you, the world's falling apart, but we, we're holding on, brother. And he said, I'll tell you what kind of church we are, Brother Barnes. And with pride in his voice, and completely happy about it, he said, I'll tell you what kind of church we are. He said, one of our little teenage girls was out whoring around, got herself pregnant. And her family, can you believe this? Her family 
wanted to have a shower for that little bastard in our church. And we said no. And he was proud of it. That is the church that many people think of when they think about church. They think of the silly squabbles and the fights and the splits over music and piano and carpet and food and drink in the auditorium. But that is not the church that Jesus intended to exist. And Paul goes on and he says, so bear with each other. Bear with each other, forgive one another, and if it of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgives because the church cannot be in conflict and on mission at the same time. It's impossible. So forgive each other because you can't be in conflict and on mission at the same time. And so Paul says, don't miss this because this is where we end. He said, if you don't hear anything else and if you don't get anything else, get this right. Get the most important thing right. And he says, and above all these things that I've talked to you about, Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Jesus said the most important thing was love. Paul came around and said the same thing. But here, here, you don't have to agree with me. And that's okay. You don't have to agree with me. But here's what I think. Here's what I see happening in so many churches, unfortunately and tragically. That so many Christians and so many churches have bought into the idea and they live as though and behave as though that truth is the most important thing. That truth is the most, we're gonna hold to the truth. We're gonna stand for the truth. Now I'm only gonna say this once, but I'm gonna come back to this in other weeks, but listen close. Love and truth are not mutually exclusive with God, but it often is with us. Truth is important, but it is not most important. Paul would say you can have all the truth and all the right theology that you want, but if you don't have love, you don't have anything. And Paul's point is this, that unity is built around truth. Unity isn't built around truth. Unity is built on love. When truth is most important, Things go off the rails. Christians begin to hate each other. We split into tribes and we split into groups and we raise walls between us and because they baptize fully and they don't baptize completely and because they use juice and because they use wine and because they think this and because they think that, we pull away and we fight each other and we get angry with each other and we hurt each other and in history we've even killed each other. And Paul's point is this, your position, whatever it is, your position is never more important than a person. Someone may have told you that your position is more important than a person, but I am here to tell you that it isn't. And at this church, when we get it right, the person or the people in front of us will always be more important than the positions that we hold. It was true of Jesus. It was true of Paul. Your position is not more important than a person. See, when truth becomes most important, love often becomes least important. We've all seen it happen. But Paul says, if you're gonna get anything right, love one another. 
so that you can be one with one another because you are the body of Christ. What is true of Jesus should be true of us. And if we lose love, if the church loses love, the world loses Jesus because we are his hands and his feet. And if we lose love for people, the world has effectively lost Jesus. So if you never know how to love someone, think about how God has loved you. If you're never sure how to respond to someone who's different than you, think about God who is very different than you has responded to you. Every time you think about how wonderful is God's love for me, also be reminded that's the way you are to love everyone else. Heavenly Father, our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. God, as a church, help us to get this right. Help us to be so overwhelmed with this need for unity. Help us to be convinced that we is greater than me. God, help us to understand that when we get this unity thing right, the world will find us more believable. Help us to be grateful for the fact that we have been loved and help us, Father, to be inspired to love in the same manner in which we have been loved. Help us to get this right. Help us to celebrate your love for us so that we can know how to love one another. In Jesus' name.